Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with two friendly people, Dr. Kathleen Van Dyke. Hello. Hi. Thanks for, for inviting us and, and having us. It's really good to meet you. Thanks for making time. Also joining us, Dr. Judy Carroll. Hey, Dr. Carroll. Hi, nice to meet you. It is nice to meet you. Both of you are at UCLA, both faculty in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Science at the Jane and Terry Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior at UCLA out on the best coast, Los Angeles. Uh, Dr. Van Dyke's a practicing neuropsychologist. She was an American Cancer Society postdoctoral fellow uh, from 2017 to 2019. She studied cognitive decline in breast cancer survivors with ACS support. Dr. Carroll is the endowed chair of the George F. Solomon Professorship in Psychobiology at UCLA, and she's also a member of the Cousin Center for Psychoneuroimmunology. Wow, that's a mouthful. Her ACS grant supported research on biobehavioral vulnerability to accelerated aging in breast cancer survivors from 2016 to 2020. So they're both, I got to tell you, I'm really excited to talk to you both. You know, you've published really extensively on the subject, including some recent papers together, right? Mm -hmm. Collaborators on, you know, loneliness and sleep and breast cancer patients and cognitive outcomes for cancer survivors. It's like obviously this really relevant area to anybody whose you know life has been touched by cancer. So really grateful to both of y'all for taking time to chat with me. Thank you. Happy to be here and talk about this very, very important topic. Right. So I want to find out like how did y'all originally get interested in this and um, come to collaborate with each other and all that. But let's maybe start here. What is cancer-related cognitive impairment? Dr. Van Dyke, we'll start with you. Um, so I tend to think about cancer-related cognitive impairment as cognitive changes that occur in someone who's had any exposure to cancer treatment or even cancer itself. So any cognitive decline following uh, cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment, it could, you know, it's has been most often studied in the context of chemotherapy exposure, but it has also been documented following radiation to the body, um, following uh, surgery, even before any treatment. And one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in is investigating the effects of endocrine therapy for hormone receptor positive breast cancers. So it's, it's a broad area um, with with kind of a loose a loose definition, but really, really focusing on cognitive changes after the cancer experience. Judith, is it common? Like, how common is it among patients? Um, so, I mean, I think it depends on how we define it. Um, and there's a you know certainly you know a range. And if you you know if you ask the patient what their symptoms are and if they're experiencing anything, they may report something that isn't necessarily going to show up on a neuropsych exam that, you know, Kathleen can certainly speak to a lot more. Um, but, you know, I think it's, you know, it's it's not as common as sort of everyone says. Um, there are women that do just fine. I think that's an important message. But, um, you know, it just depends. It was, you know, I think Kathleen could speak to that maybe a little bit more in terms of um, the prevalence and depending on how we define it, we've been working a bit on that in the Thinking and Living with Cancer study. 
And you mentioned specifically women. I guess you've both, is it fair to say, focus on uh, women with breast cancer in, in much of your research? Um, yes. I, I, yes. Breast okay, cancer so, has, so that's good to know. And, and yeah. just yeah, to set the stage, I guess during this conversation, as we talk about this, we're keeping that in mind. It's like a, that's the sort of patient group that we're focusing on. But could you talk a little bit about, Kathleen, I guess following up on, on what Judith was saying, what kind of symptoms does this produce and how, does it, how do parent, patients experience it? Sure. Yeah. It's a, so um, just to go back to the comment, though, if I could go back a little really quickly about the population, the um, cancer and cognitive impairment has tended to uh, be studied in breast cancer survivors, um, particularly because they were among the first who started reporting symptoms, but also because they're among the most prevalent um, in terms of getting large numbers of people and assessing large num numbers of people. However, it is important to recognize that, you know, again, when we're talking about non-brain tumor, non-CNS cancers, that this these symptoms can occur in other cancer populations as well. So we're starting to see that more and more as the literature and, and studies investigate, um, you know, all sorts of different types of non-CNS cancers that it's not it's not specific to breast cancer, but it happens to be a population that has been studied the most. Um, but in terms of, you know, symptoms, the it there, I think it's important also to, to recognize that it's not, we're not looking for, we don't tend to see a specific symptom that is common across people who report cognitive changes. We see kind of a, a range of reported problems. Um, people report having problems paying attention for long periods of time or having problems remembering things, um, walking into a room and not knowing why they're there um, or taking a second to remember why they're there, problems coming up with names or words when they want them, um, problems multitasking. And so it's not it's not necessarily one specific type of problem, but it can be it can uh, can come about as a couple of different types of problems um, and it's often the case that it's not very severe that it's not something very pronounced or dramatic that it tends to be more subtle um, which can also then make it a little bit trickier to pick up on clinically um, which is why it, we rely so much on what the patients are telling us they're experiencing is it a side effect of cancer or is it caused by certain treatments yeah, you know, I think that that's where the research is at, is trying to really answer that question. I don't think it's easy to to give a straight, straightforward answer because there seems to be a number of factors. There's pre-existing risk factors, so, so individuals who are coming into the cancer diagnosis with pre-existing um, risk factors for cognitive decline, and so that seems to be another feature of this to try to understand are they you know, vulnerable, and then they get you know a treatment that has effects on their their brain, and then they're more at risk for that you know the, the treatment related effects long term. Or um, you know, is it is it that that the treatments are really the primary factor? Um, you know, and then of course you're dealing with a lot of genetic variability, um, you know, and other lifestyle um, factors that may modify those outcomes. And that's, I think, probably where my research has been focused is, 
know, if we, we are seeing these effects, but it's not in everyone, so there's something that's protective. Um, and some individuals in particular, we, you know, we look at, we've been looking in breast cancer um, and breast cancer survivors, what are those protective factors? Um, so that's really where my work is focused, um, is, is considering behaviors that we might be able to intervene on and sleep being one of the really um, critical ones that we now know um, a lot more about the role of sleep and cognition and the risk for um, cognitive decline in just general patient populations um, and not specific to cancer per se, although we've, you know, we've looked at that and there's now a couple studies out looking at the role of sleep, but that there is a biological value to sleep especially deep sleep, and that there's a clearance system that we didn't know about before, but now we're learning a lot more about. A clearance system? Clearance system. What do you mean by that? So it's um, it's called the glymphatic system, and it's a space um, in the brain that was recently discovered um, that's activated during sleep, and it seems to be particularly a deep sleep phenomenon, which is when the brain's really... Uh, at rest, and this system allows for clearing of the buildup of products from daytime functioning, so that the brain is getting kind of cleaned out um, during that I, process of sleep. So I got to say that is really cool. I love science. I love our brain. I mean, how cool mm -hmm. is that? You recently discovered it's 2021, and it's pretty cool that there's still a recently discovered part of our brain that yeah. lights up during deep sleep. Um, yeah. I love it. I knew I loved deep sleep, and now I know why. <laughs> um, so poor sleep is a is a part of this, huh? It's a part of this. It, I guess it plays a pretty important role in this cancer-related cognitive impairment. You've also written about fatigue and depression and the role it plays. Um, Kathleen? You know, I, I wanted to, to go back for a second and because I think one of the um, one of the complicating factors in, the, in these issues is that when patients are actively undergoing treatment, say chemotherapy, they can experience a lot of side effects, including fatigue and sleep disturbance, and that cognitive symptoms can occur in the context of active treatment for many people. Um, but what we tend to so it's not it's not uncommon basically. And when you're undergoing active treatment to experience some for some sure positive, i can think like treatment. the anxiety of it all but also right. just the way the treatment makes you feel would interrupt your right. sleep and then like the chemo brain and the chemo fog yeah. um and what what the field of cancer cancer-related cognitive impairment is really looking at more closely are the people the the minority of people who continue to have cognitive problems well after treatment is over. And so, you know, I think when patients are in active treatment, understanding that they're, they may experience some cognitive fogginess at that point in time can be reassuring. But there are some people who don't recover or don't recover fully to baseline. And those are the people who we are looking at more closely and trying to understand and trying to support trying to unravel like why haven't they right. gotten back yeah you talk about how sleep fatigue depression anxiety loneliness can all be contributing factors to this 
cancer-related cognitive impairment, it sure makes sense that COVID could be. Like, what can you say about that and how how it's impacting folks, either in things you've seen in research or as clinicians talking to people? So, you know, there are a couple of really interesting things about COVID times, let's say. So when we say COVID, let's, you know, we're, we're kind of specifically yeah. talking about the pandemic and the right. effects of staying at home, not someone who has right, right, right. acquired COVID and, and right those complicating symptoms. Um, You know, what we found in the Thinking and Living with Cancer study that was published was that the breast cancer survivors um, were not reporting more symptoms than their healthy control um, peers uh, in the context of the pandemic, that they weren't reporting more depression or anxiety, kind of counter to what you might expect. And then through conversations um, and from clinical experience, seeing patients, one thing that came about was the idea that, in a sense, cancer patients may be a little bit, a little bit inoculated against the, the, the stress of COVID that they've, they're already undergoing, you know, major medical, major medical procedures, a major medical diagnosis, and that, you know, some of the comments that I've gotten from patients are just like, well, yeah, this is kind of sort of what I've been working with already, what I've been dealing with already. This is not a new a new threat, so to speak. Um, so I think that that was a really interesting finding and, and not, not at all to say that it's not something that we need to look at more closely and better understand and make sure that cancer patients and cancer survivors are very well supported because the flip side is that there's increased concern about their vulnerability to COVID because they're immunocompromised in the context of treatments and surgery. And so that's, you know, another another factor. But it's, I think, an area that needs a lot more study and a lot more understanding for how to really best specifically support cancer patients and cancer survivors. You've written about biology of aging and, and how cancer could accelerate the aging process. So what do you mean? And how does this relate to cancer-related cognitive impairment? Yeah, I mean, that's a a really important question. I think that's, you know, a lot of what we're trying to answer in this next wave of research um, is um, how does, you know, the treatments affect biological aging markers that we use in the blood um, predominantly, and how does that or does that biological aging process then relate to these physical declines as well as cancer-related cognitive um, impairments? So we actually have um, two funded studies now, the one that I just mentioned with TLC, but we're also asking this question in a cohort at UCLA um, led by Julie Bauer. We have a second um, grant to look at this question of biological aging in um, breast cancer survivors. They were initially um, enrolled prior to getting their treatments. So it's after their surgery, but prior to starting chemotherapy or getting radiation, and then um, followed over time, sort of like a prior to the treatment and then a post measure where we looked at biological aging initially using um, the epigenetic clock measure, which estimates someone's biological age that is the difference from their chronological age. So you could be one year older than your chronological age, you could be five years older than your chronological age. And this, these clock measures seem to um, be, be good at predicting, you know, who's at risk for 
earlier death or comorbidities developing um, in the, their lifespan. So what we found was that the some of the women showed an accelerated biological aging using this epigenetic measure um, and that but it wasn't all of them and I think that's important um, there's some variation in who is developing um, you know or, sh or showing this sort of biological aging pattern um, and so that's where we're headed next is really trying to unpack these behavioral factors that might play a role like sleep um, you know, like you know, stress, chronic stress, because we know there's a um, existing literature really in non-cancer populations that chronic life stress, um, depression history, uh, sleep disturbances, um, poor physical activity, all these different factors contribute to biological aging, or you know, at least relate to biomarkers of biological aging. And so possibly these factors are also really critical and important during, um, you know, the treatment course for cancer, as well as into survivorship. And so those are places that we can intervene and we can um, have an impact and help improve the long-term survivorship outcomes. Places where we can intervene. That is exactly what I hoped we could talk about next. Is it reversible? Are there ways that we've, um, you know, that your team and the literature has found that this cancer-related cognitive impairment can be reversed? Kathleen, could we start with you? Sure, absolutely. I think um, so. There are a couple, a couple of considerations in that regard, and, and we certainly don't want to be alarmist about it, right? First, sure. first, is, you know, like I mentioned, that these symptoms are often relatively subtle, and even though they're, of course, worrisome and, and disruptive and upsetting for the patient um, and their family, the, they typically don't rise to the level of something like Alzheimer's disease or dementia. Right, uh, right. Well, how um, do the patients even express it to you? Do they just say, like, I don't quite feel like myself or? Right. It, you know, oftentimes it comes up in the context of returning to work, mm. where they'll return to work and then feel that they're not able to be as productive or... Mm do as much or handle as much information. Um, and so the, you know, the, what, what I will clinically typically say to patients is oftentimes waiting kind of a year out yeah. from completing their cancer treatment, seeing how their body and their brain recovers over the course of a year. And hopefully again, you know, if there have been, have been symptoms in the context of treatment, they'll recover, they'll get better, but it can take a little bit of time and a little bit of adjustment. For those people who, and this is also then supported by some of the neuroimaging literature that shows recovery of, of um, white matter tracts in the brain after chemotherapy exposure over the course of a few years. Um, so there, there is recovery, but for those people, I think that one, it's nonetheless still important to support people who are having, experiencing these symptoms regardless to help function um, and do, you know, do what they wanna do in day-to-day -day life. And also, again, the, that proportion of people who continue to have problems, then we also have to target more specifically and help help understand one who's at risk, and then two how to prevent, and three how to treat when the symptoms occur. Um, in those, in that regard, a lot of the literature is focusing on one the lifestyle factors, things that we know that are good for the brain, right? 
exercise, um, diet, cognitive activity and enrichment, um, those types of protective factors. And there are a couple studies now that are, are looking at exercise regimens as treatment for cognitive changes after cancer as well. Um, the goal, kind of gold standard for treating cognitive problems is cognitive rehabilitation, which is kind of providing strategies and exercises for the brain, um, as well as helping someone figure out how they can best function in daily -day life. The way that I kind of typically talk about this with patients is that, you know, you used to be able to go from point A to point B along this path with no problem. But now that path isn't working anymore. You can't get to point B the same way. So we have to figure out another path to get you to point B. And even if it's not that you're, you know, patients want to be able to just go back to their baseline, go back to doing things that they, they used to be able to do. But really one of the goals of cognitive rehabilitation is just figuring out how to get them to point B so that they can function as well as they'd like to. Um, so, you know, the, there's a lot of research needed in this area. There is no one answer, um, which is probably clear by my <laughs> by my very varied response. But Well, no, I mean, it makes sense. No one answer because you're looking at who's vulnerable, who's at risk, how do you prevent it, and how do you intervene? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's a cognitive rehabilitation. That's a good phrase. I mean, I feel like you're going to need that after talking to me. I have that effect on people. <laughs> So, Dr. Carroll, did you have anything to add to that or along the lines of interventions or, or um, in fact, why don't, why don't I just put it this way? What are you, we've talked about these different areas of pr approach in your research. Who's at risk? How do you prevent it? How do you, you know, intervene to reverse the effects? So what are you most excited about? I'm most excited about the potential of um, sleep interventions because we know, you know, um, as much as half of the women um, that we study can have these sleep disturbances and they can be pervasive and ongoing well after treatment. Although, you know, Kathleen has pointed out in her own research that, you know, the endocrine therapy itself might also be contributing to that. So if there are um, ways to intervene and help women get better sleep, um, you know, that that might be an avenue that also helps improve their brain health. Um, we don't know for sure if that's true, um, but, but there's a lot of, you know, basic biological research that suggests that there's a pathway for that to be effective. We do know that there are effective interventions for sleep disturbances. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is one of the more well-known, well-established ones, but mindfulness meditation has also been showing effectiveness on um, a lot of Mike Irwin's work, uh, as well as some other researchers looking at the, you know, the impact of mindfulness meditation on, on these pathways. So I think it's important um, to consider what, you know, what someone might be able to do now to help improve their sleep, just gonna give them a better overall um, feeling of restoration. Uh, and, uh, you know, ho hopefully we'll be able to look at that further um, in our research to know if it really has an impact on cognition. Well, listen, I mean, if we can help people sleep better, well, <laughs> there's no higher good. <laughs> I mean, that's got trickle-down <laughs> effects to the rest of your life for sure. Kathleen, what are you most excited about? Um, well, I'm excited about a lot of things, <laughs> but, you know, 
first, can we identify who's at risk? Can we look at, say, genetics and better understand if someone, if a genotype puts someone, puts someone at greater risk? Um, also very interested in understanding how we can capture these symptoms from a neuropsychological perspective so we can help characterize them for patients, so we can help document them for patients, so we can help understand what's going on. Um, and one of the my areas of focus, um, which has been a long, long-standing um, area of, of interest and, and a, a pioneer in this field, um, and my mentor, uh, Dr. Patricia Gans here at UCLA, is really understanding the effects of endocrine therapies on brain function um, in women who are on these these essentially anti-estrogen treatments for five to ten years, um, getting a, a a really solid understanding about what's whether or not there is any risk to the brain. If there is, what does it look like? Is it does is everyone at risk? Are there certain people who are at risk? Um, you know, it's a really it's a broad women's health issue um, because one of the really interesting areas, in my opinion, is understanding estrogen function in the brain broadly. Um, and then, of course, developing treatments. Develop you know really really understanding how we can target treatments and personalize treatments uh, for people who, who are experiencing these symptoms. How did y'all first get interested in this? Was it just well, a gap in the literature or was it um, you know, a friend of the family that experienced symptoms? Or <laughs> This is actually where, where the American Cancer Society really helped support my career. So I can, I can certainly speak, speak to that um, in terms of uh, that that booth. So what I was introduced to this area by Dr. Gans um, when I was a clinical postdoc in the aging and dementia, uh, in aging and dementia uh, clinical fellowship here at UCLA, and she was so inspiring and and highlighted that this was really an underdeveloped area that we there was a lot of need for people with cognitive expertise to help document these symptoms, understand what's going on, treat these patients. Um, that I essentially pivoted from the aging and dementia field to cancer-related cognitive impairment um, with, you know, because of, of how inspiring she was in this area. Um, and in order to do that, I needed to really build up my chops in terms of literature and education and training. And so I applied for an American Cancer Society postdoctoral fellowship, which I was very fortunately awarded and that then helped support the time that I needed to pivot to this area um, and apply for more grants, you know, develop more research questions, really become more of an expert in this field. Um, so it was it was incredibly, incredibly important. Um, grateful, grateful to be here. What a great story. Dr. Gantz is the best. She's she's an American Cancer Society professor. She's just uh, amazing. Um, Absolutely. Dr. Dr. Yeah. Carroll, did, did did American Cancer Society funding have an impact on, on your career, on your research? Oh, absolutely. It was instrumental, uh, really, I think, in um, supporting this line of research and has promoted and fostered my ability to collaborate um, with others. It's kind of made the, 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 the first few questions that I had that was supported by the American Cancer Society then blossom into multiple investigators being interested um, and bringing me in and collaborating with them 
on the work that they were doing and seeing sort of the connection of the biological aging um, process in their own work. So it's, it's really allowed my research to blossom in many ways. But I was first inspired by my graduate advisor, Andy Baum, um, who has since passed. Um, but I, he was really instrumental in helping me, um, you know, start to really dive into the biological processes that were important and relevant for both cancer initiation as well as outcomes. So we really started to look at DNA damage and, um, you know, how chronic stress and life um, experiences could impact that. And that has sort of led me on this long-term path of starting to, you know, focus in on how the cancer treatments can impact biology. Um, and then when I got to UCLA, Patty, again, Patty Gans was um, instrumental really in coming to me and saying, look, I have these samples. Are you interested in measuring this here now that you're here at UCLA? And so that led um, me on this sort of expedition of, of, of developing my research in, in cancer and cancer survivorship. I'd like to close bringing it back to patients and their families. Um, you know, what message would you like to share with them, with a cancer patient or survivor or caregiver who's concerned about this subject, who's concerned about cancer-related cognitive impairment, either because maybe they're about to begin treatment or maybe they're starting to experience some of these symptoms? What message would you, would you like to share? I, get, I was thinking about this a lot because there are so many messages. You know, one of them is, you know, for the, the patient who's about to undergo treatment, I think it's it's important to be reassured that it is really a minority of patients who have longstanding problems, that there may be some short, short-lived problems, um, and that that's, that's normal, that that can happen. I think for the, the patients who are experiencing more long-term problems, I think it's important to, to tell them that we see you and that we are, you know, we're trying to understand what's going on and that there are people out there who can help and, of course, to talk to their doctors about their symptoms um, and get plugged in uh, to, to services available wherever they are. From conversations that I've had with patients and, and when I've given talks before to survivors, I think it, these are invisible problems, meaning that they, one, are subtle, that they really are primarily experienced by the patient themselves. It's not something that families necessarily pick up on and that it is important for families to recognize that these are things that can happen and that that it is they are real symptoms for their family member and to to take that with them and and to have that that level of awareness and and kindness and allowance um, for for their family members who've who've gone through the, their cancer journey so that that I think would be kind of sum up the message that I would give them. Yeah, I think you know, that that the experiences um, that some women are experiencing isn't necessarily something that everyone will experience. And uh, that there's, there's potentially a number of things that we can do or the patient can do that might help, um, that might improve their life experience. And it's a, it's, I think, 
you know, it's a, it's a pivotal moment in your life when you get that diagnosis, right? This is, it's, it's, it's full of anxiety and all these other things, but you know, it's a, it's a moment to take a breath and, and consider, you know, what is it that you might be able to do that you know, may, may be able to shift something in your life that you hadn't been paying enough attention to. Maybe it was sleep, um, maybe it was physical activity, whatever it is, it's sort of this, it's this teaching moment, I guess, um, that you could, could take with you and maybe think about, you know, what, what might, what might we do differently now? <laughs> what might be important for your overall health. Can I add on to, you know, Dr. Kyle just, just made me think of something that I've I've heard a lot from patients, which is the idea that, you know, they're, they've com- completed their cancer treatment, they're getting back to work, that they're kind of done. And there can be this level of just utter disappointment that they're not 100% back and that they're there, there are these lingering cognitive problems that they're still contending with. And so I think the, the message that I, I really try to deliver to patients is just a lot, a lot, a lot of self-kindness um, and just being gentle with yourself as you go back to work, as you go back to doing things that they're, that, you know, set the bar, set the bar at a place that you can achieve, set yourself up for success and then take it from there. Man, that's some good advice. let's give that to everybody (laughs) well what a great note to end on so i I gotta say i enjoyed this immensely so thanks so much for your time today and for all you're doing to help patients and their families and advance the field it's really cool and uh, i hope you both have a great night of sleep tonight like put your phones down don't take it into your bedroom get some good (laughs) sleep and um and um keep doing what you're doing i appreciate you both Thank you. Thank you so much for, for having us. This is, it's been an honor and so glad to, to be able to speak with you about this. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having us.